you have your Bibles, why don't you take them and turn together with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 14. On Sunday mornings, we've been going verse by verse through Luke's Gospel, and we make our way this morning back in chapter 14, verse 7. And if you do need a Bible this morning to use during the service to follow along as we study, you can just hold your hand up, and the guys are coming up the aisles. They have some Bibles. They'd be happy to give you one you can use to follow along as we study God's Word this morning. Just keep your hand up, and they'll get a Bible over to where you're at. Last week, we left off in verse 6. We looked at verses 1 through 6 and shared communion together. So this morning we're going to pick back up in Luke 14 verse 7 and my intention is to run down through verse 24. So if you're turned there together with me, would you stand together with me out of respect for the Word of God as I read our text for this morning's study. Luke 14 beginning in verse 7 regarding Jesus, it says, So he told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him, and then he who invited you and him come and say to you, give place to this man, and then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, So that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And then he also said to him who invited him, when you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And then he said to him, A certain man gave a great supper, and he invited many, And he sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. I ask that you have me excused. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to test them. I ask that you have me excused. And still another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. And then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city, and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. And then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. And Father, we humbly ask now as we open up the word of God that you would open our eyes to see what you would have us to see about you and about ourselves from your word this morning. Lord, that you'd open up our ears to hear that thing that you would want to say to each and every one of us in this room, that you'd speak personally and directly into each and every one of our lives. 
Lord, we pray whatever it takes to prepare us to hear the voice of the living God speaking to us this morning, that you would do that for each and every one of us. Settle our hearts and minds, take away everything that would just exalt itself against the knowledge of you in our lives. And help us to be attentive, Lord, to be able to receive what it is exactly you want to say to us. Speak to us. We ask that you'd bless your word. You know what we need and you know exactly what we're asking right now. And we pray that you would do such believing you will in the wonderful name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, one of the most powerful things that every human being equally possesses is the ability to make choices. There is indeed lots of different variations on this earth and social status and opportunity, and we all have different lifestyles and statuses and stations in life, but there is indeed something that we all equally possess, and quite honestly, I think it is probably one of the most powerful things that we all do possess, and that is the ability to individually make personal choices. God has created us by design with the capacity, and then beyond that, which shocks me even more, God continues to always allow us the freedom to make our own personal decisions. God created us, free will, moral agents, the ability to have our own capacity to exercise human volition, to make our own choices, to make our own decisions. And then what shocks me even more as foolish and, 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 and off base we can be at times, God continues to allow us the freedom to make our own choices. And I want you to just consider for just a moment the tremendous power and the incredible impact that choices really do have. When we think about some of the choices we've made and how far-reaching and how tremendous of an impact those choices really have, or we think about the decisions that other people have made in our lives or throughout history and how the power of just one decision can have such tremendous effect both for good and for evil. Our choices have tremendous power behind them. And it's for that very reason that it matters very much to Jesus how we make our choices. Let me say that again. It matters very much to Jesus how we make our choices. And I think that is indeed one of the very clear lessons that this passage brings to the surface before us. We'll see as we go through it. Now remember, the beginning of chapter 14, as we looked at it last week, tells us that Jesus was invited to a dinner by one of the rulers of the Pharisees. So as we come into the scene this morning, we're right in the midst still of this dinner experience as Jesus is over the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees. They're sharing a meal together. And it's at that point, with that background in the midst of the dinner, it tells us, verse 17, that Jesus then told a parable to those who were invited. It says, when he noted, verse 7, how they chose the best places. So take notice with me, if you would, how Jesus here is taking very clear notice of the way in which people chose, it tells us, to pursue what was best for themselves when they had the opportunity to do such. That's what verse 7 tells us. It tells us that Jesus took notice of how the people at that dinner chose to pursue what was best for them when they had the opportunity. Now, 
important to understand ancient culture, especially regarding meals and feasts and banquets. Social status was extremely important in that culture, really as it was in any culture. And social status was often indicated by the seating of dinner guests when feasts and banquets would take place. It was one of the clear ways to make that distinction. When someone would have a feast or they'd offer a banquet, there was always a table or a particular seat and location where the host sat. And wherever that location was at a table, if there were multiple tables or just one table, wherever the seat of the host was at, that special seat, the importance of the others who were guests there was indicated by how close they were seated to the host himself or the some individual maybe who was the guest of honor. So once you knew where the host was at, that was the most important seat. From that point on, one's importance and significance was defined by their proximity to that particular seating location. And as you looked at the seats around the room, in descending order from where the host was sitting at that most important seat, in descending order it then indicated your level of importance or social status or rank. So whether you were in seat 3 or seat 13, or for some of us we might have been out on the patio, way away from everything, that indicated exactly how distinguished you were, how important of a guest you particularly were. And the whole seating arrangement, it just had this pecking order to indicate in a very clear way your rank or your status or your level of importance. And everyone in that culture understood that social practice, so they sat down accordingly when they went to feasts and they went to banquets. It was typical human nature to do what exactly we would probably do, which would be to scramble towards the head of the table because we want to go sit by the person who's important so we can talk to them or feel a little more important rather than being somewhere else. So no doubt Jesus observed this taking place, and the reason was you wanted to position yourself in a notable spot to sort of represent yourself as someone who had a little bit of clout more importance because it indicated that. That's what this means in verse 7 when it tells us here that it says Jesus noticed how they chose the best places. And the first thing important for us to see is that Jesus observes how we make our choices. That is the reasons and the motivations behind why we make the choices that we do. Let's be very honest, a big, big part of life is making choices. We are always making choices all the time. Small choices, big choices, we're making small decisions in life and we're making huge decisions in life. And our everyday experience from the moment that we get up, even a a given day is filled with multiple choices and decisions that we make. And therefore, it matters very much to Jesus how we make our choices because he takes note of how we make our choices. The Lord observes and pays attention to every choice and every decision that I make, especially the personal motivations that persuade me to make the choices that I do in a particular given situation, that I choose what I do or I don't choose what I don't choose. The Lord takes notice of that. He pays attention and is aware of that. Though others may not see it, we may not recognize it, and though many times... We're unconscious or maybe even ignorant to our own ways. The Lord Jesus is fully aware what persuaded me and why I made the choice that I did in a given situation. And secondly, Jesus, it seems to me in verse 7, is fully aware of when we make choices based upon what is best 
for us. Because what did he take note of that stimulated the parable? He took note how they chose the best places for themselves. And Jesus always takes notice, not only what my choice is, but Jesus also sees when I'm making choices and I'm being self-seeking and I'm being self-serving and I'm being self-centered and self-promoting, the times when we're maneuvering about with the intended goal of really getting what's best for us. The Lord sees that when we're choosing really what's best for us. And our natural sinful tendency, let's be very honest, is that we're self-seeking. That's our natural tendency, our sinful nature to be self-seeking and self-centered, but that is not what pleases and that is not what honors the Lord. That's why Paul writes to the Philippians in chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, these words regarding that. He says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. See, the Word of God wouldn't give us that instruction if we don't, by nature, automatically live completely opposed to what that instruction says. That's why, as a Christian, as the Holy Spirit enters our life and the Spirit of truth indwells us, God says, listen, I know your natural tendency, Tony. Your natural tendency is to always consider yourself before considering other people. And your natural sinful tendency is to do things out of selfish ambition and to take into consideration, whether you're conscious of it or not, what's ultimately best for you and what's going to benefit you the most or what's going to get you what you want or how ultimately it's going to work out best that you get your way. So the Word of God says to us, here's the truth. Let nothing be done. Nothing. Does that really say that? What's that mean in the Greek? It means nothing. <laughs> Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, wanting to promote ourselves before others. Instead, he says, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. That I'm to live life in an upside-down way to where we naturally live, where we always put others before ourselves. I'm to always consider others better than myself. Every person around me, God says, Tony, make them more important than you. You're not important. Others are important. Jesus is important, and then after Jesus, everyone else is more important than you. You live in an upside-down way. And he says, in so doing, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. That's the challenge to us. That we would make decisions, we would make choices, we would act and behave, and we would speak and consider other people in the way that we always behave and conduct ourselves. That we would always take into consideration, if I say this, how's that going to affect them? If I do this, how's that going to affect my wife? If I act in this way, what is that going to convey to my children? If I live in this way, what is that going to demonstrate to everyone else around me? That I would always take into consideration when I make my choices and decisions the effect it's going to have on other people. That I wouldn't have the attitude of natural human tendency where my attitude is, you know what, I'm going to do this. I could care less what you think about it. I could care less about the effect it's going to have on everyone else. Listen, it's that decision-making capacity in the human nature of self-centeredness that destroys our culture. That's what shipwrecks marriages. That's what parents do to ruin and neglect their children because they think about themselves and they don't take into consideration as parents, if I do this, how's this going to mortify and destroy my children? 
They don't take into consideration others, and because of that, families fall apart, our culture is struggling, and many people get hurt and wounded. So the Word of God says, listen, here's God's ideal, that we would esteem others better than ourselves. We wouldn't choose what's best for us, because that disheartens the Lord, but that we would choose thinking about, hey, what would be best for others? And in this scene here, it says Jesus noticed. He took note, it says. He was fully aware. He observed it. He, he takes it into consideration. He noted how they chose the best places. In other words, Jesus saw pride and selfishness was motivating the people in that particular feast there to assert themselves. So he tells a parable now to kind of try and correct this type of behavior. He addresses it beginning in verse 8. Jesus tells them a parable saying to them, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, he says, don't sit down in the best place lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And then he who invited you may come over and say to you, uh, sorry, man, you were supposed to be on the patio. <laughs> what are you doing in C3? You're supposed to be out in the patio. This guy here is way more important to you than you, he says. And then you begin with shame to have to go out and take the lowest place. And here Jesus begins to give warning of the danger of what they were doing, how they would come in and typical to human nature, they didn't want to look like they weren't impressive or important, so they would scramble for the, the best seat. And, and, and Jesus says, look, don't do that when you come in. Can I encourage you? Don't do that. You're setting yourself up for humiliation and shame when you do that. And he says, you come in, and then what happens if somebody way more distinguished or honorable than you comes in, and that host sees you sitting in a spot where he wanted that person to sit, and then he has to come over to you in front of everybody and say, ah, sorry, can you give up your seat? I'd like him to sit here next to me, and, and how about you, well, there's a seat way in the back there. Why don't, why don't you go sit down there, and you have to get up and face that shame and that humiliation in that process. Shows me how, again, Jesus understands our natural human tendencies. He says, don't go and choose the best place when you come in. Jesus understands the reality that we love attention. We crave to be admired by other people. Our fleshly desire, our sinful tendency, whether we want to admit it or not, is we love to be seen as important in the eyes of other people. We may humbly play it off that we don't like it, but when people look at us and they're impressed by us or they're, you know, wow, you're so talented at this or wow, you seem such a mover and shaker or you have this, we, we love that. Our flesh feeds on that. We enjoy being admired. We enjoy when people are impressed with us. We love recognition and being respected and people thinking that we're something, whether it's you know, among our friends or in school or in business or in the neighborhood. We, we love that. It's our natural human tendency. And because of that, truth of the matter is often we will do whatever it takes to act in certain ways. Maybe we'll talk in certain ways sometimes and, and just behave and do certain things because really what we're doing is trying to obtain a social status. We want to appear to be somebody in front of our peers in school, so we'll act and behave in a certain way just because we want to be perceived as somebody in a particular status and, and looked upon in a certain way among our school friends. Or people do it in business all the time. They act and conduct themselves in a certain way because they want to seem or appear in a certain way among their co-workers or even in the eyes of their boss or employer hoping that somehow that, hey, what's obvious, this is the guy we should elevate. Because, let me, and, and we're trying to so often do things in a way where we want to be admired. We want to be accepted. We want to be recognized. And we want to give off a certain image. And Jesus advises, notice, against that tendency. 
He advises here in verse 8 and 9 against that tendency in our lives to try and do things to put ourselves in a special position where we're overconfident about our own importance or we're maybe through personal ambition trying to climb up in some capacity. And Jesus says, look, that can lead to some real humiliation. Again, in his love, he's saying, I know your natural tendency, but I'm trying to spare you some real embarrassment. Because he says, when you're trying to promote yourself and you're trying to elevate yourself and gain recognition and self-exaltation, he says that course has a tendency, more often than not, to end in real shame and humiliation ultimately. Because see, what will ultimately happen is eventually something will happen whereby we find ourselves getting knocked down a few pegs. Ever happened to anybody before? Where the Lord has a way, where when we're, he has a way of just letting some things unfold to kind of knock us down a few pegs and to put us right back in our proper place and give us a real sober reality check of, of who we really are and where we're at. And Jesus was trying to spare them of that by advising them in that way. Now, verse 10, he says, instead of that, verse 10, he says, when you are invited, instead, go sit down in the lowest place so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, Go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. So Jesus instructs simply taking a different approach. And that is an approach of living in humility, which does not come naturally. We all know that. But it is the thing that God will honor ultimately. Jesus says instead, when you go in, if you even think that this is where you should be, Aim just a little bit lower in an attitude of humility. Just aim a little bit lower. And he says, then the ultimate thing is what a blessing if they come along and say, hey, what are you doing down here? I mean, you should be up here. And he says, instead of being humiliated, you'll be honored. And you'll be blessed in the process and spare the disappointment. Jesus is talking about here not seeking opportunity or advancement for ourselves, but instead waiting on God to elevate you. Let me say that again. Jesus is talking about not seeking opportunity and not seeking advancement for ourselves, but waiting on God to be the one to elevate you in his time. Not thinking too high of ourselves or trying to sell or display ourselves. Instead, having a humble opinion of who we are, being a person who foremost is considering, hey, what is best for others? And I want others to have what's best first. So I'm going to seek to find ways to give opportunity for what's best to be available to others. Proverbs 25 tells us this in verse 6 and 7. It says, Do not exalt yourself in the presence of the king, and do not stand in the place of the great. For it is better that he say to you, Come up here, than that you should be put lower in the presence of the prince. So Jesus says, Look, don't go in, take the best place, and get embarrassed. Instead, go in, have a, a, a sober, humble opinion about yourself. Consider everybody else better than you and let them have what's best and, and get what would benefit them. And he says, and God will honor this. Look, verse 11, now here's the principle. He says, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So that's the principle behind the parable now. The principle behind the parable is simply that God will humble and bring low those of us who are proud and self-seeking at times. And on the flip side of that, God also will bless and elevate those who walk in humility and put others first. Now, would you agree with me this morning that runs completely in contradiction to worldly wisdom? 
secular philosophy and the ideology of our present world culture runs completely in contradiction to what Jesus is saying in verse 11 there. Hey, whoever exalts himself, that's going to get, who's going to get humbled? And whoever humbles himself, that's who will get exalted. Our world teaches us from birth everything the opposite. Our world continues to tell us, hey, you need to assert yourself. And you need to make sure that you advertise and promote yourself. I mean, what's the whole goal in writing a resume? You want to make yourself look, what, really good so you get the job. I mean, try something different. Make yourself look horrible on a resume. See if you get a job. I don't know, it'd be kind of strange, but test it. You know? Our whole culture tells us, assert yourself, promote yourself, adver- and, and, and what? You need to take control before somebody else does. Because if you don't take control, somebody else will take control. So you need to take control and be aggressive. And Jesus says, notice, Jesus says in God's economy, in God's economy, Jesus says it's an upside-down kingdom. And the way it works with God's economy is he says the way up is that you choose first to lower yourself by a conscious choice of humility. And isn't it interesting? Jesus had to die before he was raised. He died first, and then he was raised to glory afterwards. Verse 11, Jesus says, whoever exalts himself, that's the warning here, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. So when we try to make ourselves important or lift ourselves up, there's a warning and a promise attached that when we're choosing to be self-promoting or gaining attention or seeking our own interests, the warning that Jesus gives to us is that when we're trying to do that, he's warning that he will humble us. The Lord will break us. The Lord will allow at times, if necessary, in my life and in your life, an occasion where if I'm doing those things, where he will let us fall flat on our face, where he'll let us fail, where he will break and humble that spirit in us. And that humbling process, please hear me, it's not for our humiliation. The Lord has no delight in humiliating people. That's not his intention. But the humbling process really is for our own help and benefit. Because the Lord knows what's best for us. And he wants to bless us. He wants to honor us and he wants to do good things. Proverbs 29 says a man's pride will bring him low. Proverbs 28 verse, or excuse me, verse 18 verse 12 says, Before destruction the heart of a man is haughty and before honor is humility. Notice the balance there. What precedes destruction is when we're arrogant. When, when, when we're arrogant, that's what precedes instruction. In the same way, Jesus also tells us in the Word of God that before honor is humility. So right before we're honored, the Bible says right before honor, what preceded that is a person had a humble spirit. And God delights in that humble spirit. And God blesses and honors that very humble spirit. So at times, the Lord will allow certain things in our lives to really humble us personally. And Jesus gives us that warning here, but he also gives a promise attached to this in verse 11. He says, however, he who humbles himself will be exalted. So in regards to walking in humility and when we trust God for elevation and opportunity, instead of trying to grab for it and push for it and take it for ourselves, but we just walk in humility and we wait on God to exalt us in his timing when he chooses, and we have an honest estimation of ourselves, And we live in humility and we just quietly do what we do faithfully as unto the Lord and doing it for the benefit of helping other people and not trying to draw attention to ourselves. God promises us here in the words of Jesus that he will bless and honor that kind of an attitude and that type of a lifestyle. Jesus says he who humbles himself will be 
exalted. The Lord promises to honor that when we live in that other way. Psalm 75, verse 6 and 7 says, For exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south, but God is judge. He puts down one, and he exalts another. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, verse 6, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. And really think about it. Who's the greatest example of this? Jesus. I encourage you, write in your notes there in your Bible, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 9, and go read and meditate upon that later on. Philippians 2, verse 5 through 9, there tells us, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. In other words, Jesus, knowing that he was God, it says instead, what did he do? It says he humbled himself to the place of a servant, and therefore, it says, God has highly exalted him to be the place of greatest honor and authority that he becomes the name above all names and at every knee and every tongue will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Jesus demonstrated that pattern. He was God. You want to talk about being important. And Jesus didn't come to this earth seeking to get everyone to recognize his importance. He came to this earth and the Bible says that his mindset was he humbled himself became a servant the greatest among you Jesus said will be the servant of all he said I did not come to be served but to serve and to give my life away as a ransom for many and because he humbled himself to the place of a servant it says God therefore highly exalted him the father lifted him up and see that's the pattern and the Philippian writer there is telling us Paul says listen let this mind be in you that same mindset that same mindset that if that's the way Jesus functioned in his humanity on his time on earth, that the spirit of Jesus, if you're a Christian, the spirit of the risen Christ lives in you, which means we should have the same mindset as Jesus. We should have that same mindset in the way we seek to conduct ourselves on this earth. Look at verse 12. It says, And then Jesus also said to the one who invited him, so he now turns to the host of the banquet, and he says, When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, he says, and your brothers or your relatives, nor your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. He says, but when you give a feast, invite the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you shall be repaid, Jesus says, at the resurrection of the just. So Jesus now turns and he gives an instruction here to those who are in the position of being able through their generosity and through their capacity to show hospitality and generosity to others. And what Jesus is not saying, please hear me, in verse 12, what Jesus is not saying is that it's wrong to invite family and friends over for dinner and we shouldn't spend time with family and friends. That's not a good, it's not a prohibition about spending time with relatives at a birthday or at the holidays or inviting them over or having friends with us. What Jesus is doing is challenging us to have a ministry mindset in the way that at times we choose and decide who we're going to spend some fellowship with, that we with a ministry mindset would take into consideration the usage of our time and the usage of our resources and the way that we interact with other people. He's saying don't just do things for those who can give something back to you in return. Don't just extend kindness or help only to people who you know can repay you somehow. He's saying be careful of that. Caution yourself against, again, our natural tendency is what? We always look for reciprocal benefit. What person purposely chooses to make an investment in business 
hoping they don't get any return out of it, right? Our natural tendency is reciprocal benefit. Hey, I'm going to invest in this. Why do you invest? To get a good return. And we typically do that in the way we interact with people. We're so often naturally just looking for a reciprocal benefit in the way that we interact with people on this earth. We may not admit it again, but often our reasoning is, I'll do this because I know that if I do this, that it will benefit me long term in my relationship or interaction with this person because someday ultimately they'll be able to do something in return for me and I can cash in on that favor. And Jesus is telling us here, be careful. Don't do things, he says, where you're taking into consideration whether or not you're going to get repaid somehow. Don't do things in a way, he says, where you're simply thinking about whether consciously or if not taking into consideration unconsciously is that somehow, hey, how will this somehow maybe work to my advantage later on or, or what can I get out of it? And again, sadly, that is our world's mindset. That's what we've been indoctrinated with because that's the way that our world often operates. And that's why we need to be in the Word of God because the Bible tells us that we're in the Word of God. There's the renewing of our minds. And my mind needs to be constantly be renewed because the world is sowing the mentality and the ideologies and the ways of the world into my brain. And that's what we live in and operate in, in our schools and in our businesses and in our world. We are constantly being pushed with this idea where people basically live in the capacity where I'll do this because if I do, I know ultimately somehow I'll be able to glean some benefit of this later on. A lot of times we just call this working the system. And people know how to work the system. And we can all be guilty of that at times if we're not careful, where people show kindness simply in exchange for something that they know they can get later on. People do it in relationships where they show kindness and treat a person a certain way in exchange for what they're hoping and knowing that they're going to be able to get later on. And can I tell you, young lady, something this morning? If a young man is doing something to be kind because he's looking for an exchange for something later on, that is not a young man you should be spending any time with. But people do this. Our natural sinful tendency is to be manipulative and to take advantage of people. And we invest, even in relationships, in such a way where we're thinking about, hey, somehow I'll, I'll get repaid and, and benefit through this. And Jesus is saying, look, when you have opportunity, he's just cautioning. He's saying, look, don't let yourself operate in that way. He says, instead, verse 13, don't always look to get some benefit back from everyone. He says, but when you give a feast, he says... Try something different. He says, give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. So he says, try reaching out to investing in and being kind to people, he says, who can offer you absolutely nothing in return. The poor, he says, they have, they have nothing to give back. What can they give back? Someone who's crippled or blind, he says, they can't do something in return for you. In other words, what you're doing for that person is pure generosity. It's just sincere, sacrificial giving. There's nothing of benefit for you. You simply want to bless someone. You want to give to them. There's no strings attached. There's no you know, uh, expectation. There's nothing in it for you. It's just the truest form of giving. It's the way that God gives, sacrificially. In a way that's loving, with sincere love and care and concern for other people. And Jesus challenges us to do things to help people, to minister to people in such a way where it is strictly for their benefit alone. You know what, can I challenge you and encourage you this morning as you walk through this next week? Try it. 
Try and look for ways in your life and your experience in this next week ahead, in the month ahead, look for ways to try and apply what Jesus is saying here where you seek to do things to help people, to minister to people in such a way where it has nothing to do with you. It's just all for their benefit. Do things strictly to just, it's all about their benefit. It has nothing to do with anything beneficial for you. In fact, maybe it's completely sacrificial for you, but it blesses and it benefits them. And that's what Jesus is telling us to do. And if we treat people in this way, again, notice verse 14, God will honor that. Because Jesus says, if you do that in a way you can't be repaid, he says, you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So if we do these things for those who can't repay us, Jesus says the outcome is, number one, you'll be blessed. And number two, he says, you will be repaid ultimately. See, there are two things that God wants us to see. One of the benefits of doing things for people who can't repay us is we enjoy the experience of doing that. Jesus says, you'll be blessed. And isn't it true if you ever have done something for someone maybe who's less fortunate or you've helped someone in a strictly sacrificial way because you just want to assist them with no other reason or motivation, is it not true that God has made it in such a way that when we do things like that, we get blessed? And to do something for someone when it's strictly all about blessing and benefiting them, the amazing thing is you get so blessed in the process, don't you? If you've ever served the Lord in ministry, or you go on a missions trip, and people come back from a missions trip, being in a third world country, and they go, man, I got so blessed. You went and poured out, I got so blessed. Because God's made it in a way that when we act this way, we get blessed. Jesus said, you'll be blessed. And he says, not only will you be blessed and benefit that way, but he says, there's also the reality that one day, even though they can't repay you, God will repay you. And you will be rewarded. Jesus says, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. He speaks of a time of reward for the just, that is those who live for God. And how that coming day at the end of the age, God's servants will be repaid for all the things that they did on this earth for God's sake. Proverbs tells us, he who lends to the poor lends to the Lord and the Lord shall repay him. Jesus said in Revelation 22, I'm coming soon and my reward is with me to repay all according to their deeds. So Jesus says, look, do things in such a way. He says, you'll be blessed, and then you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, when someone sitting there, verse 15 tells us, heard Jesus talking about a feast, and now he made mention of the resurrection of the just at the end of the age, his mind is stimulated. It says, one of those who sat at the table, verse 15, when he heard these things, he piped up and said, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. So Jesus' statements about a feast and the resurrection of the just stimulate this man's mindset, and he now begins to think about the kingdom of God and pipes out a response in regards to that. Now remember, for the mind of the Jew, they often pictured the kingdom of God as a grand feast with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets being there and all those who were Jews gathered around in this great banquet enjoying the kingdom of God. That's why he declares, blessed is he who shall get to eat bread in the kingdom of God. He's saying how much of a blessing it's going to be for all those who get to share in the experience of the coming kingdom of God or in the experience of heaven ahead. Now this spokesman had a very clear sense of confidence that he was automatically going to be there in the kingdom of God, simply probably because of his Jewish heritage. And Jesus now uses this picture of the kingdom as a great supper to seek to address 
the false confidence in this man's heart as a Jew that he would automatically be in the kingdom and to challenge again him and those listening of the responsibility of making important spiritual choices to make sure that they're genuinely going to be there because they've chosen to embrace God's invitation. Look what it says, verse 16. Then Jesus said, thanks for the intro. Well, that's kind of the idea. Thanks for the intro. He says, a certain man gave a great supper and invited many. Now this host giving a great supper is God. And notice this great supper is going to be a picture of the kingdom of God or of heaven. And take notice that God, regarding the kingdom of God or heaven, it says invited many. That God invites many. God's intention is that many be together with him in the kingdom as a result of accepting his invitation to participate in the kingdom of God and heaven after this life. Verse 17, And therefore he sent his servant at supper time to those who were invited, saying, Come, for all things are now ready. Again, in the ancient culture, people would receive advance notice when a banquet was going to happen. And they would know the day of the banquet, but they would never know the exact hour of the banquet. And the reason, very simply, was because there was an extensive process to prepare food and to get a banquet ready. It wasn't like today where you could just go in the freezer and pull out two bags of voila or whatever and you know, throw it in the pan and whip it up and have somebody over for dinner a half hour later. They had to go out and slaughter an animal from among their herd and, and dress it and prepare it and then roast and get the animal ready. It was a long process. So after the process was completed and everything was ready, that was then supper time, and then a servant would be out, sent out to go through the community to the invited guests and to say, hey, everything's ready, come now. The time is now ready. And at the set time, he would beckon people to personally respond to what had been prepared for them, what had been made ready. And now was the time for them, the call went forth to embrace the invitation and act upon it. He would go forth and say, come for all things are now ready. And what a beautiful spiritual picture Jesus paints for us here. The reality being that all along through the years, God had been sending advance notice to his people in Israel, the Jews, letting them know in advance that he was going to send a savior and a deliverer to the world. And God was inviting the Jews first. And he had given them advance notice prior to anyone else that he was going to provide salvation. And over the years, God was going through an extensive process to make all things ready for the coming of Jesus Christ. And Jesus would ultimately be that lamb that was sacrificed to take away the sins of the world. And just like this unnamed servant who went out to invite many people, the Spirit of God goes out and he beckons people to come the Spirit of God was going out on that day, beckoning the Jews, saying, Come, honor Jesus, for everything's ready now. The Messiah's here, the Savior's here. And the same way today, the present ministry and the present message of the Holy Spirit is exactly the same. The Spirit of God, as his servant in a sense, goes out. He's the invisible, unseen representative of the third person of the Trinity. And he goes out, the Holy Spirit, and he's giving the same message today. He's saying to the world, Come. Everything's ready. God's made everything ready. God in his love has made all the necessary preparations for us to enter and experience the kingdom of God. And that to me is an incredible reality to think about what it required, the extensive costs and preparations for God to make everything ready for our sins to be forgiven. We're all sinners. We all deserve the punishment of hell because we all fail. 
But God went through an extensive process to make things ready for all of our sins to be forgiven and so that we can all have access into the eternal realm and be in heaven together with God forever. And consider what that took for God to make a way. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he had to give his only begotten son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God had to find a just way because he's holy. He couldn't just wink at sin and say, okay, well, I'll let you go. I'll give you a free... He's, he's God. He's a holy and a just God. And that's why Romans says he is just and the justifier of those who believe. God came, took the responsibility upon himself, sent his son to live in human flesh, live the perfect life that I can't and you can't. And then after living the sinless life to satisfy the requirement for heaven, Jesus then took the punishment we deserve and was crucified as the Lamb of God in our place and poured out his holy precious blood, which is the only thing that can remove the stain and the guilt for all of our sins and failures. And now Jesus, being resurrected and alive, can offer access into the eternal realm. And he can offer to us the freedom to have access to be with the Heavenly Father. Consider what God has done to make things ready for us so that our sins can be forgiven. And now with great enthusiasm, can you imagine the heart of the Father in heaven and of Jesus Christ as the Holy Spirit, as their representative, goes out and the Holy Spirit with great excitement and great enthusiasm is going forth and saying, Come! Everything's ready. You don't have to do anything. Everything is ready. There's nothing you have to do to make yourself right with God. There's nothing you can do. Everything's been done for you. You don't have to pay for anything. He's prepared the way. And all that needs to be done now is that we respond to the invitation of God being extended to us in all of our lives. Well, as the servant is saying, come, all things are now ready. Look with me in verse 18. It says, but they all, with one accord began to make excuses. Shocking. Instead of greatly appreciating what was offered to them in this incredible banquet, instead, people, it says, began to make excuses why they could not come. Listen, there are at times legitimate reasons for things in this life. An excuse is not a legitimate reason. An excuse is the exact opposite. An excuse is not a legitimate reason. An excuse is offering false and shallow reasons to try and justify wrong behavior and to get ourselves excused from something that we know we should do is the right thing. That's what excuses are. It's interesting to me that Jesus says they began to, look at the language, they began to make excuses. Make excuses. See, we create excuses as an escape method. Let me say that again. We create, we make excuses as an escape method. We make excuses because we want to be excused from doing what we know is right, so we make excuses to try and get out of things. And we are great at presenting excuses, and this, there's only one thing, listen, one thing that keeps people out of heaven. They refuse the invitation of God to let Jesus Christ save them and forgive their sins. And often that rejection of God's invitation is fueled by human excuses. By human excuses that are presented instead of a person responding. Notice how all these excuses too were extremely shallow. Look with me in verse 18. It says, the first said to him, well, listen, I've bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. So I ask you to have me excused. Wait a minute. It was an extensive process in Israel in that day to buy a piece of ground. You bought a piece of ground and now you have to go see it. Who buys a piece of property sight unseen? 
Well, I bought this piece of ground, so now I need to go check it out since I bought it. Come on. That's a total lie. That's an excuse. Who would buy a piece of property without ever seeing it? The next individual gives a similar shallow excuse. Another said, well, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to go test them. I want to go try them out. I ask you, have me excused. Who would buy animals to use to plow in their fields without ever trying them out? That's like saying, hey, I bought this car. I'm going to go test drive it now. You test drive the car before you ever buy it. It was just a shallow excuse. I think the third was probably the most shallow excuse. Still another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Now, I'm not going to touch that one. For, but, well, I'm married, so I, just, I can't come now because I'm married. Well, you're not allowed out to play, or what's the problem? You know what I mean? I can't come. I've married a wife. I'm not able to come to the feast. When they married, they took a year off from military and labor to spend time with their wife. They had plenty of additional time on their hands in Israel in that day. Consider the general topics represented in their excuses, if you would, too. What is it? Take notice, verse 18 to 20. It's preoccupation with things like possessions. The excuses were preoccupation with things like work and their goals, preoccupation with relationships, and these are often the things that keep people and people use as excuses for not following Jesus. They're too preoccupied with this. They don't want to leave that relationship to follow Jesus Christ instead. They're too occupied in the things of this world or plowing out in the fields. And lest we be too hard, ladies and gentlemen, lest we be too hard on the unsaved world, Let's be very honest as Christians to admit the reality that many a times as believers we often make excuses ourselves for why we don't participate and do the things that God intends for us to be doing. Many a times as Christians we can make great excuses for why we're not attending church, why we don't have our devotions as we should, why we're not serving God in ministry in some capacity, and often our excuses, let me be very candid, they are cheap and they're lame and they're shallow. They simply are. I've made them and I'm guilty of them and I have heard so many of them I could write a book. And many a times, even as Christians, we are not giving legitimate reasons, we're giving lame excuses. Lame excuses while we're not doing the things that God is intending for us to be doing. And they're not, listen, I understand there are legitimate reasons, but many a times it's not legitimate reasons, it's lame excuses. We justify our spiritual refusal of God's intentions by saying, well, I, I'm too busy maintaining, and then it has to do with the possessions. I, oh, I have to do this, and I have to tend to that, and, 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 and we're too busy, we're preoccupied with that. Or many times as even Christians, we're, we're too busy plowing in other fields. We have plenty of time to plow in other fields. Our hobbies, our activities, our interests, our, our sports. You know, we, we have plenty of time for everything else. But hey, I, you know, I just, schedule's too full. I, I just don't have time for that. Or many times as Christians, one of the excuses often that we can present is we have some human relationship that we have elevated above the Lord. And that human relationship is a thing we're using as an excuse for not truly doing the thing and living the way God wants us to. Well, verse 21 tells us that the servant came back and reported these things to his master. And the master of that house, notice, being angry. 
said to a servant, Go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in, notice, the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. Notice, there was a legitimate offense to this gracious host when they spurned his invitation and made it seem unimportant in comparison to all the little things that they needed to do in their own interests instead. It says he was angry, the one who offered the opportunity. And quite honestly, I think there are just reasons on occasion where God could be a little bit offended at some of the excuses that we can make on occasions towards him. And please notice as well, God extends his invitation to others when we refuse. Since they refused, the host said, you know what? Well, then go offer the invitation to someone else instead. If they want to reject the opportunity, and of course among the Jews, this pictured how God would open the door of salvation to the Gentiles. And for us, it's a reminder how if we reject God's offer in our lives, God will extend the offer to someone else. If I deem it not important, then God will just turn and extend the offer to someone else instead. It tells us here in verse 22 that the servant said, Master, it's done as you commanded. He went out. He says, but there's still room. Notice, God always still has room. No matter how many people respond, God's door is always open. The opportunity is always available. Verse 23 said, The master said that the servant will go out into the highways and hedges and compel them, he says, to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited, who had rejected with excuses, shall now taste my supper. Notice a few final things with me in these last few verses. First of all, the rejection of the Lord can and does cause a loss of spiritual opportunity. Verse 24, Jesus portrays, he says, none of those who were invited but gave excuses and rejected the opportunity shall now taste my supper. They lost the opportunity. And it's an important reminder that the time can come where we forsake God who once was giving us an open invitation and we, we forsake God long enough where the door of opportunity closes and then it's too late. And there's nothing left but regret then. And that time can come in any life where we reject God to a point, listen to me, we reject God to a point where eventually God says, okay, I will receive your choice of rejection. It was your choice and therefore I will receive your choice of rejection. And the time can come when God will simply receive our choice and honor our will. And despite how many reject the Lord's grace, Despite how often the heart of God is still that heaven be filled. I love what it says there that he says, go and get people that my house may be filled. God wants to see people saved. God wants to see people serving his son Jesus and he's no respect of a person. He's just looking for responsive people. All you need to do is just be responsive and available. And the Lord, seeing your responsiveness will save you by your faith in Jesus or seeing your availability will use you to serve Jesus. And therefore, he commands his servants, go out everywhere. He says, go out everywhere and compel people to come in. And listen, ladies and gentlemen, for those of us who are Christians, that's what the Holy Spirit wants to use us to do as God's servants today, to go out and to compel people, to compel people, come, come. Everything's ready. God loves you. God has plans for your life and to compel people to come to Jesus. Hey, this morning, let me leave you with two final thoughts. First of all, how have you been making choices recently? Have you been making choices the world's way or are you making choices God's way? 
And is something that's hindering your proper choices the fact that you're just getting good at making excuses? If you are, can I give you a loving word? Repent. Stop making excuses. Do what's right. And if you're here this morning and you've never embraced Jesus Christ yet as your Savior and Lord, I believe the Holy Spirit is compelling you, saying, come. Come to Jesus. Father, thank you for this time to let your word speak into our lives. And Lord, as we turn our hearts in worship now, we just pray and ask that we could be responsive by making a choice to respond to what you have said to each and every one of us this morning. Help us, Lord, to be responsive to you, we pray, that we might experience your best for our lives. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.